In 72, it's a millennial psalm. And from the last verse, we learn that it is a prayer of David for his son Solomon and may have been written by Solomon. And all the requests were not granted in Solomon's day, but will be granted for the one who is the greater than Solomon, the promised seed of David, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a millennial psalm. If you look at verse 20 instead of verse 1, it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The last verse of this psalm. Psalm 72. It says, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. A righteous king is going to reign someday. We believe David was a righteous king. We preached this morning on the king shall reign in righteousness from Isaiah 32 verse 1. And princes shall rule in judgment. And we have never seen a righteous reign and rule while we have been upon this earth, nor generations past or to come, until Jesus comes. There's always been wickedness, there's always been violence, there's always been sin, there's always been wars, there's always been, from the beginning of time, the first two sons of Adam, Cain slew Abel his brother. And from then on, we've had this kind of thing going on in the world. Because of sin, uh, James says, from whence cometh wars and fightings among you. And he says they come even from our own lust that war in our members. And that's where the big wars start in the hearts of men. Great big wars and all the violence and all the heartache and all the turmoil in the world today starts not from the outside, but from the inside of the hearts of men. That's where it all starts. And it's because of greed and selfishness and and hardness of heart and sin in the lives of people. And one day God is going to change all that. And it says, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. Of course, David here was speaking concerning Solomon, his son. And when David was on his dying bed, he said to Solomon, he gave him a charge. And he said to Solomon, Show thyself a man and keep the charge of the Lord. That was the last words he said to his son. He could have said to Solomon, Show yourself a great king. Show yourself to be a king like I have been before you, or like God had had me to be. But he didn't do that. He said, Show thyself a man and keep the charge of the Lord. He knew that uh, godliness and holiness and righteousness would be the best thing that he could pray for his son, uh, Solomon. Now look at verse 2. It says, He shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. He's going to bring uh, the right kind of judgment. He shall judge thy people with righteousness. Many times today people are judged not with righteousness. And thy poor with judgment. My son called me the other day, and he says, Daddy, what I don't understand is why there are so many people that work hard all their lives and get very little pay for it and are always poor. He's doing very well himself. But he has a very deep sympathy for people who work hard and never seem to get anywhere. God's going to set all that aright one of these days. And everyone will have plenty and enough if they turn to God. And so, and then in verse 3, he's going to bring peace to the earth. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. It's as if the mountains and the hills... By the way, sometimes the mountains are used to... Sim- symbolically as of nations and the little hills as smaller uh, provinces or something to represent there to symbolize those but actually he says the mountains shall bring peace to the people 
and the little hills by righteousness. And God speaks of them as actually being able to bring this peace and prosperity. Verse 4, he says, He shall judge the poor of the people, he shall save the children of the needy, and shall break in pieces the oppressor. What kind of king would that be? He's going to bring prosperity to the poor and the needy, and he's going to take up for their cause. And he's going to break in pieces the oppressor. Don't you hate to see people that oppress the poor? I remember working for a lady one time. We were working up in the Upper Canyon, and I won't call anyone's name. But uh, we were working for this lady, and she was very wealthy. And uh, one day we had the electrician come out, and, you know, I was working as a contractor, and I had electricians and plumbers and so on. And, boy, she was laying the law down to him, and he called her my name and says, Listen, says, Lincoln freed the slaves a long time ago. You know, I mean, she was just coming down on him like he just had to bow down and crawl on the ground and getting out that old uh, whip and uh, look kind of like the taskmasters of Egypt when the children of Israel were in bondage and they were having to make bricks without straw, you know. And it's terrible for people to think just because they have uh, a lot of money that they can buy people and cause people to bow down and serve them more. Every man should think of himself with dignity and with honor and respect, and the other person too. You remember I've taught you this lesson a hundred times, if I've taught it once, that there's a right way of thinking about yourself. Uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 12 that we ought not to think, uh, that every man should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, more highly, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So to think too highly is to be too proud, isn't it? And then he said to Timothy and to Titus as well, Let no man despise thee. And then he said, Let no man despise thy youth. So to think lowly is not good. But to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. You take that middle ground and don't try to be above everyone else, but don't let people thump on you either. You hold up for your rights and your dignity and, and respect and give the other man the same uh, privilege. And I believe that's the way God would have us to think. Because He tells us that's the way He wants us to think. Okay, look at verse um, 5. It says, They shall fear, they shall fear as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. They shall fear thee. And verse 6 says, Look, <clears throat> He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. He will bring refreshments and refreshings and meet all the needs of humanity. Verse 7 says, In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace, so long as the moon endureth. He shall be a universal king, and he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the rivers unto the ends of the earth. Here's the universality of his kingship. You know, God is going to be king over all the earth. He is now. But uh, people have not given him due uh, reverence. But it says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river and to the ends of the earth. Remember you read in the book of Philippians that the Bible says concerning Jesus that he uh, made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Then the next verse says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, 
and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. You see? He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the rivers and to the ends of the earth. And they shall give him that respect. And that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at verse 9. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. He will subdue all of his enemies. All the enemies, all the atheists, all the people that speak out against God, all the people that uh, try to uh, oppose the things of God. You know, we have a nation that I believe was was established under God. And we should come back to the fact that that's the reason it exists today. But we have so many now that have pushed him outside and have not given him any uh, respect whatsoever and have uh, sought more for the feelings and the rights of the people than the respect for God. And that's where it is today, you know. In other words, you, we, we just can't have, you know... Think about back... 30, 40 years ago. There was no problem having a Christmas program in the schoolhouse. I mean, there was, when I was growing up, what was wrong with that? That was what it, you expected to have one. If you didn't have one, something was wrong with the school. But nowadays, brother, you better not do that at all. You better not mention it because you're not going to get it. And the thing about it is we have just pushed God out of everything. And we have certain people who won't even take the... the uh, inscription off our coins that says in God we trust they won't do away with that because they won't trust in the almighty dollar and no trust in God whatsoever but he's going to subdue all the enemies look at verse 9 they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust I believe that God as creator and as universal king has a right to uh, tell his people and his subjects what to do and we are his subjects and God has a right to expect of us due reverence and respect. Then verse 10 it says, The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. All the kings and all the nations will pay tribute to the Lord. Isaiah 2 verse 3. Let me read the book of Isaiah. I believe it's chapter 2. In verse 3 it says, And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and it says he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn of war learn war anymore. There'll be a time that instead of swords and spears, they'll be making plows and pruning hooks so that they can harvest the land. They won't need to fight each other. They'll need to uh, reap the harvest that God will give. And then they'll learn of war uh, no more. You won't have any uh, military schools and training fields to make soldiers and sailors and marines and people to go out to battle. You won't have any need for that. That'll be a grand day, won't it? We'll, ne we'll have never seen it, but God promises it in His Word. And then look at verse uh, 12, if you will. Uh, well, verse 11 says, Yea, all kings shall fall down before Him. We just quoted that in Philippians 2 where it says, Every knee shall bow. 
and all nations shall serve him. They don't now. Verse 12, For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth. The poor and the needy will be taken care of immediately. We have all these uh, uh, senators, representatives up there trying to figure out how to take care of the poor. It says, He shall deliver the poor, the needy, deliver the needy when he crieth. The poor also and him that hath no helper. So there are people that need help. There are people that need the right kind of help. And then there are people that abuse that help. I was behind the lady in the furs yesterday. She loaded her basket full of groceries and got two 24 packs of beer. Right along with it, paid for it with your tax dollars. <laughs> you know, that's great, isn't it? I'd say I'd never give this bum out here on the street. If I know he's going to take it and spend it on beer, I'd go buy him a meal or give him some money for food, take him to McDonald's if, if I could or something like that. But I wouldn't ever give him money to go buy his liquor. But that's exactly what we do every day. We give them plenty of money and they go buy it. You say, well, they can't get it. They do. They do. They get all the return of their their stamp money or whatever. And I'm not against people that need money. They should get it. Those We have a lot of people that need. But don't go buy 24 or 48 cans of beer with it. You need food. That's a different story. And all of us have found our place in need. I remember when I was a little boy, my dad worked for the county over here. He's a, uh, out of the sheriff's office at uh, Carrizoza. And uh, there was a widow lady with uh, one son, teenage boy. wasn't quite, was a pretty small boy. And uh, he would, uh, dad would go by Capitan. They had the uh, commodities uh, a building over there, a warehouse where they got the commodities and he'd fill up a cardboard box full of they had the peanut butter and cheese and prunes and, and flour and, and lard and all kinds of necessities you know and boy I'd see some of that stuff and I'd say daddy why can't we have some of that and he was just drawing a little bit of money and we didn't have as much to buy we couldn't buy that because that was good food we'd have loved to have some of that but we couldn't get it because he was working and those people really needed it. I'm not belittling that at all. But I'm just saying, some of the working people need it too. And uh, we were, were there were six kids in our family. I had two brothers and three sisters, and we were all hungry. But uh, Dad was making, you know what he got for going out and serving the warrant, brother? And, and uh, he got 50 cents. 50 cents. And of course, he'd drive this old Model T Ford. And he had, you know, gas was pretty cheap, but you still had to have some. <laughs> but he'd go out and he'd serve, serve a warrant or, or a subpoena or whatever. He got 50 cents for delivering that as a constable. And uh, you didn't get a regular salary. You just made little dabs here and there where they'd give you some money. In those days, the law enforcement got paid very little, if anything. But anyway, those problems are in the past. But I'm just saying that God's going to deliver the poor and the needy when he crieth. And there are plenty of people that need help. And we need to see that they get help. And by the way, we as Christians, when someone cries to us for help, we need to consider their situation and also give them the help. And him that hath no helper. Then in verse 13, he shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. Look at that. He's going to spare them. Not only to take care of their physical needs, but save the souls of the needy. God is interested in spiritual things as well. And so, 
their spiritual needs will be supplied as well as their physical needs. Verse uh, 14, He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and, and preciousness shall be their blood, uh, shall their blood be in his sight. Precious shall their blood be in his sight. So God considers souls very precious. Every one of us are dear to God. Every soul of man is dear to God. Every soul is precious. And we need to realize that God cares about each and every one of us. And there's a scripture that I have preached on. Some of you have heard me. He says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. So it's as much as we're engraved and, and, and embedded in the palms of his hands. And God has done that concerning each and every one of us. And in verse 15, And he shall live, and to him shall be given the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. Look at that. The subjects of the king will show their gratitude by their gifts and by their praises. And notice, and daily shall he be praised. You and I need to praise God daily. I never wake up in the morning before I start praying the very moment I wake up and think, God, this is a new day that you've given me. Help us to rejoice and be glad in it. Give me the strength that I need for today. I'm thankful that I have uh, awakened and that I have a, a day before me. And without God's grace, I, I wouldn't be here. And then the next thing. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon. Lebanon was that fruitful place in Israel. And they of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. There will be universal prosperity. There's coming a time. Let me read Isaiah 37. I think I have it. Isaiah 37 and verse 7 says, And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, in the habitation of dragons, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. God shall send the prosperity in due time. There will be universal prosperity. Then there will be universal blessings. Verse 17. Hold your place where we're studying in the psalm. Always hold your place and we'll go right now in the next verse. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him and all nations shall call him blessed. There will be universal blessings. Verse 18, it says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. Look, the Lord only will be exalted in that name. Who only doeth wondrous things. Did you know if you study the Word, you'll find that the emphasis sometimes is missed. We read that verse and we say, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. But it says, Who only? The wondrous things comes from one person and one, one source only, and that is God Himself. And then, look at the last verse, last two verses. <clears throat> verse 19 and 20. It says, And blessed be His glorious name forever. This will be universal glory, universal blessings. And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. So be it and so be it. And then it says in verse 20, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And by the way, this ends the, the second section of the Psalms. And this concludes the prayers of David and the Psalms of David up to that particular point. I want us to study the 73rd Psalm tonight. I believe we have time to get into it. We have about 22 minutes. And I, this is all, I always delight to get to Psalm 73. 
I think this is one of the, the best psalms that a person can study if they don't understand what's going on in the world. If you wonder why wicked people prosper and the saints suffer, the pros- this uh, psalm could be titled, The Prosperity of the Wicked and the Suffering of the Righteous. It seems to be contradictory. We, ought, we think that the righteous ought to be prospering and the wicked suffer. If we had it our way, that's the way it would be. But God uh, permits the wicked to prosper, and he also permits the righteous to suffer for certain reasons. And there's a great deal of need to understand these things. Now, the first thing you find in this psalm is a perplexing problem, verses 1 through 3. We'll divide it up this way. Here's a problem. The psalmist said in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. For I was in this at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is a a perplexing problem, isn't it, for all of us. He says there's no question about God's goodness to the, the nation of Israel. He says, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are a clean, uh, clean heart. You know, in the book of Romans, uh, Paul speaks of eight blessings above the Gentiles that Israel has. In the book of Romans, let's see, I believe it's the ninth chapter, Romans chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. It says this, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth, here, here you have them listed, the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service, service of God, and the promises, at six. Who are the fathers, of whom concerning the flesh Christ came. Eight blessings, particularly to the nation of Israel, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. And so the psalmist says, truly God is good to Israel. He did not deny that. He did not question that. And there was no question about it. And he says, even to such as over a clean heart, God's goodness is to the pure in heart. And it could not be denied. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And down in verse uh, uh, 2 it says, but as for me. He said, God is good to them, but what about me? He felt like he was left out. As for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. He was like standing on a sheet of ice, standing on slippery ground. He was just about to let his steps slide out from under him. He just could not stand on the firm foundation or the solid rock. He felt like everything was sliding out from under his feet. Doubt was in his heart. And it was about to change his conduct and the way that he felt and lived. He says, My steps had well nigh slipped. And then in verse 3 he says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever been envious at the foolish? When I saw, he says, When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Does it puzzle you sometimes why God permits men in wickedness and with their wicked schemes and with all of the... Uh, things that they use to get gain and for their greed and their lust for power and for money. And it seems that God permits it. And it caused him to doubt. It caused great doubts. In the book of Job, chapter 21, in verse 7, Job had the same problem. It says, Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, almighty in power? It puzzled Job. 
He says, Their seed is established in their sight with them, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. God doesn't even chasten them, says Job. But sometimes things are not what they seem to be. And we'll get to it. We've, we've seen the problem. And as we progress in our teaching, we'll find uh, uh, that there's finally a time that this uh, psalmist sees it sees things a little different than he does now. And then the wicked are described, beginning with verses 4 on down through verse uh, 12. 4 through 12. Look, here are the wicked described. It says, For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're, they're not afraid to die. Seem like that wicked men, they, they just die. Same as others. Go on and, you know, a lot of people have been under the mistaken... Uh, idea that just because a man goes to sleep and dies without any turmoil or, or great uh, catastrophe, that he's dying at peace, that's not necessarily so. It's good when people do die in peace knowing that the Lord is with them. Don't misunderstand me. But just because a man, he can become so hardened that he has no respect for it at all. And he, you may think, well, you know, he died and he's all right. Yes, he did, but he may not have God either. That doesn't prove anything, because all of us die. And some saints are very fearful. And, and they're, even though they're ready to die, they're fearful because they love life. And sometimes it's right the reverse of what you think it'd be. Some dear saints of God. Okay? But anyway, he goes on to say, There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. Verse 5 says, They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Sometimes this seems to be the case. It's not always true, but it seems to be the case that they don't have any problems. But the Bible says the ungodly are not sober, they're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. The first psalm, remember when we gave you the first six verses of the psalms, the first psalm has only six verses. The first three verses pertain to the, to the righteous or the godly, and the last three <coughs> pertain to the wicked. And it says in Psalm 1, beginning with the fourth verse, that the ungodly are not so, but are like a chaff which the wind drives away. It tells you about the righteous, and he being like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. But it says the ungodly are not so. So in reality, they may seem to prosper when they're really not prospering as much as they seem to. Because a lot of wicked put on a big front. And they say, oh, yes, God, you know, they, they leave God out of their plans, but they say, well, I get along just fine, and you know, I can do good. There's nothing wrong with me. And they seem to be doing, doing very well without God. But then you go on down and you find something else. It says, they're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. They're proud and oppressive. And then it says, Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart could wish. They seem to have more than they need and more than a person could wish for. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. You find that they have a corrupt heart and it's revealed in their life and in the way they talk. It says, They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. They blaspheme the God of heaven. They speak out against God. Jude says, speaketh great swelling words of vanity. And it says, therefore his people return thither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. 
we find that God's people, what happens to them? They drive God's people to prayer and cause great suffering. Verse 10 says, Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they deny the power of God to know anything about. They're like the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Look at verse 11. They say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? The Bible tells us that God is all-knowing, and that God knows everything, and that God sees everything, and that God has all power. We believe he's omnipotent and omniscient. He has all knowledge, all sight, and all power. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the ways of man. He seeth all his goings. He says, There is no darkness, no shadow of death, where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. But they say, How does God know? How does God know? The Bible says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Listen carefully. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, you're not going to hide anything from God. There's no hiding place except in Christ like we preached this morning. You have a hiding place from the wrath of God and the judgment of God and from the onslaughts of Satan and from every uh, thing that would harm you in Jesus Christ. But if, you're not, if you don't turn to Him, you don't have that refuge. We find that they're like the Bible says in Psalm 14.1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. The Bible says that fools make a mock at sin. Proverbs 14, verse 9. Then we find that these are the ungodly. Behold, verse 12 says, Behold, these are the ungodly that prosper, who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. The first thing we found was the perplexing problem, and the verses we just read have described the wicked. Now then, in verse, verses 13 through 16, or through 17, I should say, no, verse 13 through 16, we have the conclusion that the psalmist comes to because of what he's found out. First of all, his feet were on slippery ground. He had a perplexing problem. Secondly, the wicked were described as having these uh, various traits and characteristics of speaking out against God and going on without regarding God and saying, how does God know? And it caused great grief to the children of God. And then in verses 13 through 16, we find that the conclusion he reaches is this, that it doesn't, first of all, he thinks it doesn't pay to serve God. In verse 13, he says, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. Have you ever, as a Christian, felt like, well, you know, when I was out there living like I wanted to, before I became a Christian, I didn't have such a hard time. And now, you know, it's just hard for me to serve God. It's really hard to do. And sometimes that's the impression we get when it seems like that the world cares less about your, uh, your faith and your trust in the Lord. And the world cares less about you. And you say, well, what good does it do for me to serve God? You ever felt that way? What good does it do? I'm trying to do the best I can. What good does it do? And then it says, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He felt like that the Lord was a hard master to serve. Look at verse 14. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. But what he didn't realize, the Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chastened. He says, all the day, he says I've been plagued. All day long I've, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. You know, just because you're a child of God, just because you're a Christian, doesn't mean you're exempt from the natural and normal things that men, the temptations and trials that come to all men. It doesn't mean you're exempt from it. You get sick and I get sick. 
A wicked man gets sick and a good man gets sick. A wicked man dies and good men die. The wicked have their problems and we have our problems. When Jesus was on the stormy sea, the Bible says, with them there were other little ships. Jesus was in the boat in the ship where the disciples were. But the storm was on all the sea. And Mark's gospel says there were other little ships. Don't think just because you're a child of God and you have problems that no one else has. And by the way, don't come to the conclusion that the preacher doesn't have a few either. You know, my sink will stop up the same as yours. I can have a flat tire the same as you can. Maybe my car won't start like yours doesn't sometimes. There, all the things that happen to you can happen to me. And they do, quite often. But thank the Lord, He gives us a way to get through those problems. And I'm very grateful when, when they don't happen. But I'm not surprised when they do. Because all of us have to face them. And we thank God that we have His presence. He says, he says uh, For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. He says, If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. He was almost ashamed <clears throat> to say anything about it and to express his feelings but because it might cause, cause others to doubt. Remember when Peter was walking to Jesus on the water and he took his eyes off of Jesus, Jesus told Peter, you know, Peter says, Lord, if that be thou walking on the water, bid me to come unto thee. And Jesus says, come on. He says, come. So Peter started walking toward the Lord. And when he started walking, he was doing fine. And all of a sudden, he looked about and he saw the winds and the waves and he became frightful and afraid. And he began to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and saved him. And Jesus said to him, Wherefore didst thou fear, O thou of little faith? And you know, sometimes we're afraid that what we do and how we act might cause others to fear and doubt. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I shall offend against the generation of thy children. Verse 16 says, <coughs> Listen. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. He says, I just don't understand. I am chastened. I am plagued. I have these problems. The wicked prosper. They speak out against God. And he says, I'm, my feet are almost ready to slip out from under me. I'm like a man that's walking on thin ice. I don't know where to turn. I just don't understand. This is too painful for me. Then he says, in verse 17 is the turning point. The problem is solved. Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein. That's the turning point in this whole psalm. And when we go in the presence of God, get into God's presence. That's where it's solved. In times of doubt, go to church. In times of doubt, get into God's presence. Get into God's assembly. Get into God's house. And you know you find more answers here than you do out. You could go all day. Listen. You can go, go out to the public library and you can study the uh, books. That's fine. And I study them. Everyone should read the dictionary and the encyclopedias and, and uh, history and things that you can study. And there's nothing wrong with knowing these things. But on the other hand, sometimes you can gain more actual ex uh, knowledge for your life and, and to, for your experience and for your need in one hour in the house of God, then you will get all day reading those books. And I, as I say, I'm not against that. You should read them. But if you want spiritual guidance, you get into God's presence in God's house. That's where it's found. 
when the word is taught. Now I feel sorry for people who go to places and the word's not taught because they don't get it there either. And that's a shame to go to the house of God for guidance and not get any guidance. That's a shame to the church and a shame to the ministry. People ought to be guided. You ought to have learned at least something by coming tonight. You ought to have learned something from God's Word. You ought to have been impressed one way or another how to deal with the problems of life and and how to think about things, how to think about the millennium that is to come, that perfect time that there will be peace and righteousness and a true king will reign. You ought to learn this problem we're talking about in Psalm 73, how that the wicked prosper and how we're to handle it. And when we're chastened, realize that it's because whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth. You ought to learn some of these things by coming to the house of God. So it says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Those wicked that were prospering, they're in slippery places. The true position of the wicked was finally found out. That casts us them down to destruction. God is going to destroy the wicked. Then look at the next verse. How are they brought into desolation as in the moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins, in my inmost being, in very inside of me. So foolish was I, and ignorant I was as a beast before thee. The psalmist began to feel his own uh, ignorance and grief because of doubting God. Look at that. He says, Thus was my heart grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. In my reins, reins in a heart means the inmost part of us. And he says, so foolish was I. So foolish was I. And, and ignorant. I didn't understand the things of God. And then he says, I was as a beast before thee. And then he begins to count his blessings from verses 23 through the rest. Verse 23 through 28. He counts his blessings. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Look at how down he was at the beginning. He says, God is good to Israel, but as for me, you know, I don't even count. Remember that? When he first started out, he says, God is good to most of the nation, of all the people, but as for me, I feel left out. Now look what he says here. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Who holds us up? The Bible says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Thou hast holding me with my, by my right hand. Thou shalt, guide me, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. Leadership and eternal guidance, eternal bliss. It says, and afterward receive me to glory. We need God's leadership and guidance. Look, look at this verse. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. That's God's word, God's message to us. And afterward, receive me to glory. I like that, afterward. You know, we must have a guide. And God is the best guide we can have. And He guides us by His Word. And He guides us by His Spirit. And the sure result is afterward, receive me to glory. That's the sure result of God's guidance. Then let's notice something else. He says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee? We talking earlier about a friend. Brother Nichols is reading about a friend. Proverbs 18, verse 24 says, uh, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And then it says something else. There is a friend that sticketh closer 
than a brother. And we sing a song. What a friend we have in Jesus. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And so here, he says his best friend, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God was his strength and his portion. His best friend both in heaven and in earth. And he, when he was weak, God was his strength. And then let's notice something else. Verse 27 and 28. Sum it up. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me, it is good for me. Before we read the rest, I want you to drop back to verse 2. Verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. As for me. But now he says, But it is good for me to draw near to God. He found out one thing. It was good to draw near to God. It's good to draw near to God through Christ. It's good to draw near to God through prayer. It's good to draw near to God Himself in spirit. And this will be the removal of many evils and many misunderstandings. When you lack strength, when you're falling into sin, whenever you have any kind of problem, it's good for me. It's good for the church. It's good for every individual. It's good for you and I to draw near to God. It's not good to try to understand all the mysteries of the providence of God. That's what he was trying to do, is understand all the mysteries of the providence of God. 